Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Binds, a podcast about food and relationships. I'm a restaurant critic and food writer based in Atlanta, Georgia. Today, I'm joined by Jarrett Steber, chef and owner of Little Bear in Atlanta. Hi, Jarrett. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to people who might not know who you are? Sure. Uh, my name is Jarrett Steber. I'm the chef and owner of Little Bear in Summerhill on Georgia Avenue, Atlanta, Georgia. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, pretty much here. I've been uh, been in Atlanta since I was three, so I feel like that's about as Atlantan as it gets. <laughs> I'm thinking about the same. I moved here yeah. when I was three. Um, and when did you know that food was going to be a thing for you? Is there like a dish you remember eating or a restaurant? It, that that moment when you were like, oh, this is something I like to do more than just for enjoyment. Yeah, for me, it didn't really start till high school. Um, I grew up around food, but we weren't like that sort of, you know, modern American family that sits together at the dinner table every night. Uh, my dad is a transplant surgeon growing up, so his hours were super unpredictable and all over the place. And my sister and I were five years apart, so we had, you know, kind of different school cycles and extracurricular activities. So it was a lot of fending for yourself kind of kind of stuff. But we did grow up around it a good bit with my dad's side of the family. He's Romanian, um, fled Romania with his parents and settled in different places. His parents stayed in Germany, so we we had a lot of exposure to food growing up, but it never really felt like something that'd be, you know, a major part of my life uh, until high school. I had gotten really into music, was playing music, like a lot of restaurant people was a musician in a past life. Um, and I started watching Emerald Live on TV just because it was kind of like entertaining. I wasn't super into cooking per se, but he was so charismatic and he had that good band and just kind of like, yeah, this guy's crazy, screaming about all these food ingredients and getting the crowd hyped up. And they got the music in between all the different segments. So I just started watching that and kind of messing around with canned pasta sauce and jazzing it up for dinner. And then eventually kind of was like, you know, maybe I should see if I can find a, you know, restaurant that'll let me kind of shadow their chef for, you know, a day or two in a kitchen and see where it goes. And that was kind of the start of it. And it never really looked back. What restaurant was that? I ended up going to Alon's in like okay. the original location in Morningside back when it was still just the one. Um, we kind of had a tradition with my dad and my sister and I would, uh, we would go with him to make rounds on Saturdays and then do uh, either breakfast before or after at Alon's. It was just kind of this long running tradition. So we had a pretty good rapport built up with Alon and Janine because at the time his wife and still I believe they're both partners in it now. Um, and yeah, so I just kind of asked him, was like, hey, do you mind if I, you know, just come by and spend a day or two seeing how things work and you know, just getting a feel for restaurants? I just read Kitchen Confidential, of course, by the, the late, great Tony Bourdain and uh, just wanted to kind of get a foot in the door. And they just sort of kept putting me on the schedule and I ended up just kind of working the whole summer. And at the end, I think I was 15 then. So it was right before my junior year of high school. Um, and yeah, I think I just kind of fell into the schedule along gave me some cash at the end of the summer and was like, here's some money for all the work you did. Do you want to keep working? Was, sure. So I just worked every Saturday and Sunday on my weekends away from school and worked, you know, eight to 12 hour shifts in a restaurant instead of going out and being crazy on the weekends. And that was kind of my life. And it continued. 
Yeah, so uh, it was it was always just music or or food basically. So I was playing music and uh, you know working in restaurants. My senior year, I backed it up a little, just getting ready for college. I didn't work a full time restaurant job, um, but I did still stage at you know the old Joel back in the day before oh it was God. you know used to be whatever it is now. It's local three, mm-hmm. um, five seasons like right when it opened. Dave Larkworthy was still the chef and Dennis Lang was the owner. All that stuff. So you know kind of dating myself a little bit on my career so you were like trajectory, but... ryan heidinger then or yeah i never worked with him there? but no. you know kind of that network of people so yeah that was uh you know kind of how i spent my high school and then when i graduated from high school it was uh you know orientation weekend i went to unc Asheville for orientation weekend i was like i'm not going to do anything i get a degree in here i just want to play music <laughs> And there's not a play music for a living degree. So, you know, I called my parents and was like, I don't know what to do, but this doesn't feel right. And they're like, okay, well, you can, if you're certain, you can come back. And if you want to cook, you at least have to go to culinary school, get some sort of degree and like, you know, keep playing music if you want, but make sure you have a job. And they've always been really supportive of it. So it's kind of, you know, do it and commit to it, but make sure that at least get some school you at least have like a steady job and then you know take it seriously and we'll see where it goes and yeah that was kind of never look back moment i suppose was around around then when i left uh regular college and came back home to go to culinary school and just kept working so did you go to culinary school here i did yeah the former lake cordon bleu now all their north american locations are defunct so that shows what kind of culinary school education oh i, I went to got. cordon bleu at did california you? culinary academy in san yeah. francisco so i'm sure I it was better out there but I don't uh, know. no no yeah <laughs> it was a I mean, puppy mill as well uh, yeah that's a, you know. that's a perfect way to yeah we seem like it, the yeah. same timeline i read kitchen confidential then yeah. ended up going to culinary school you know watching food network yeah it was so big back then it was so exciting yeah we're in the cca they had like all these rows of TVs, like all turned to food TV with like Emerald on, you know, like yeah, aspirational. Totally. I mean, but... those were like real restaurant people then. That was one of the mm-hmm. biggest differences, like all those kind of, I, I remember even beyond that as a kid watching like Yan Can Cook when I was in oh, yeah. elementary school and just being like, this dude butchers chicken so fast. Yes. It's crazy. With this How thing. does he cut that fine? I know, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah, they were yes. all like real restaurant people. They just mm-hmm. ended up on TV, but you knew they actually had chops. It wasn't like, yeah. you know, nowadays where it's just all these random people, you know, just personalities. Yeah, it's personality driven, mm-hmm. you know, and niche driven, I think for sure now. So when did you start how old are you when you started cooking, you know, like with bigger chefs and like really started refining your techniques? I know you worked with Todd yeah. Ginsburg of the General Muir and Josh Hopkins at Abattoir. Um, I mean, you have just as someone who is eating your food. I mean, you are just you have so much technique, you know, like you just no, are you. so precise, but like surprising. Yeah. Um, but like you can tell that you have a foundation. Yeah, yeah, and which I think sadly is something that's not happening so much anymore with the younger generations of mm-hmm. cooks. I kind of worry about that. Now everybody just kind of wants to do their own pop-up or be a sous chef right out of the gates from culinary school and people don't really want to go through the grind, which I get it sucks. I've lived it. I went through it. I got paid like shit. I got treated like shit, but you learn. And I think it's, you know, it'd be better now that people learn, you know, have learned they have to like try at least to pay a living wage and be decent humans to their staff Mm -hmm. so it's a little bit better than kind of the old days but i still think it's you know really important that you spend 
you know, at least a decade or whatever it is honing in the craft because as artistic and creative as it is, it's still a craft. And if you don't have the technique, you don't have anything, you know? Um, but I would, I would pretty much started working for, I would consider like quality chefs really right from the beginning uh, in a lot of ways, because Alon was very demanding and technical. And that was my first boss, you know, and he was kind of like, he just had his hands in everything. There wasn't a single area of that restaurant of any of the food production from pastry to savory food that he didn't oversee and couldn't do better than anybody who was tasked with doing it. So it was a lot of leading by example. And then, you know, after that, it was being in that Joel kitchen for a stage and seeing, you know, the French technique. Uh, also seeing the extravagance and how much of a waste of resources a place like that really is. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when I was in uh, culinary school, uh, I worked for Hector Santiago at Pura Vida while I was in school, which was absolutely like one of my favorite restaurants ever in Atlanta history, way ahead of its time, unfortunately. It, 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 I was just thinking about Pura Vida the other day. I'm sorry to interrupt no. you, but no, no. That, because I saw Hector posting on Instagram at his at Super Parent, which I love. You know, and and because I love his tofu burrito, it's still one of my favorite tastes in Atlanta, with the pepitas and everything. But it's just so wild to me. Like Pura Vida is such an important restaurant. It was, and it was like such an institutional restaurant, and like it's just like gone. Oh, I know. I mean, if it had been open now, it would be you know a great time for it. But this was whatever it was two thousand six, two thousand seven when it was open. I worked there in two thousand seven, I believe. Um, and he was doing and molecular yeah. gastronomy. Yeah, but too. without flaunting it, it was like there was a place. Oh man, it's going to slip my mind. But there was a guy who had been Wiley Dufresne from WD50, had been his New York, had been his pastry chef. And he opened a restaurant. It was called Taylor. And it was like the best elements of WD50, of that progressive mm -hmm. molecular gastronomy food. But it was not pretentious at all, it wasn't stuffy. The prefix was affordable, which is probably why partially it went out of business in New York, mm -hmm. but it was just like the best experience when I ate there. And I remember, you know, introducing myself to him and he invited me and my high school girlfriend at the time to like go back and look at the kitchen and we were hanging out after work and, you know, shooting the shit with them. It was this great experience. And I feel like Pura Vida kind of had that vibe too of like the food was progressive and technical and creative and different, but it wasn't flaunting it it wasn't like here's this dish with foam and pillowcase of gas mm -hmm. and all whatever mm -hmm. pretentious stuff it was just kind of like here's a list of ingredients or it's a celery ceviche whatever how it would read on the menu but then you would get into the dish and you would see the technique and all the tricks and you know stuff behind it but it was just kind of like this is just part of getting to the final result of the flavor it wasn't flaunted but yeah you know atlantan at the time we're you know still very much like meat and potato kind of diners and it's a lot better now but that's still a bit of a struggle sometimes is getting people to step out of their comfort zone and trust unusual flavor combinations that they haven't had before and you know give us the the credit to sort of be like i promise this isn't on the menu because it's disgusting and sounds weird it's on the menu because <laughs> we think it's good and you should try it so it's definitely an ongoing battle but yeah i think they were just you know a decade ahead of their time probably but I mean, you, so just transitioning from where you started, you, if listeners don't know, were really like the, the pop-up OG in yeah. Atlanta. 
you know yeah, I, yeah. I interviewed the guys from Talat last week and you know they credit you you know with being you know someone who set a lot of benchmarks um i mean yeah there were like moses was doing them for a minute and like i went to those yeah. and stuff but like but like i feel like you really defined what a pop-up could be creatively for a chef yeah thank you I appreciate um that. and like I've always found you to be kind of out of the box, you know, yeah, which is, yeah. I mean, like, you know, like Hector, now that I'm just thinking about Hector's food and then thinking about your food since it's fresh in mind, since I ate it, it makes a lot of sense that you work for him Yeah, because you're really, your flavors are over the fucking top. You yeah, know? I, I mean, I was they always are drawn to that with Hector for sure. I ate there once or twice and I remember taking my parents there for dinner and we were just having this great meal and I was like, yeah, fucking I'm just gonna ask this guy if he's hiring. And at the time too, he was like, I don't hire culinary school students. He was like, I, I don't fuck with this, you know? He's like a bunch of pretentious kids, like, you know, spoon fed, whatever. And uh I was persistent enough. And I think, you know, he'd seen me in there a few times and was just like, All right, I'll take a chance, but you have a very short leash, you know. Like he he had me like do, you know you're in culinary school let's see what you can do i need you know a quart each of micro brunois carrot onion celery like, okay so i did it and then he was like all right great and use it for sofrito to make family meal <laughs> and you know it was that kind of stuff but he was testing my merit and seeing yeah. if i you know had the attitude to cut it but you know you can be around creative people like that you learn that really quickly like he would make me redo my chiffonaded culantro four or five times every single shift for this one dish and it was a garnish where you like almost couldn't even taste it hardly on the dish by the end mm -hmm. but it was just like nope not thin enough again not thin enough again so it was like this hyper creative artistic guy but it was technique 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 and after that i worked at um holman and finch kind of right when it opened I started at restaurant Eugene for my externship after culinary school and uh, a couple months into Holman and Finch being open, they had fired their one of the opening sous chefs and a couple of his employees left with him. And they were like, all right, all the like shitty young people from restaurant Eugene, just throw them over there. So <laughs> I went over and started working there and it was, you know, the same thing. It was very technical and progressive at the time with the, you know, awful cookery and making charcuterie in house, which is where I met Ryan Smith, who was kind of a mentor figure for me. He was doing the charcuterie at Holman and Finch, and then he took over both restaurants, was running mm -hmm. Holman and Finch and Eugene. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I was like, well, I'm not spending any time with him anymore because he split back and forth. I'd been there for a year and a half, and they weren't really promoting me. I, I knew how to work all the stations, but there was no really way up. And they hired like a new lead line cook from outside. And it was kind of like, all right, clearly they're not, you know, going to let me progress here. So I left to work at Abattoir for Josh Hopkins after that because the same kind of thing. It was like, this is a place doing interesting progressive food. It's clearly very technical. I can learn more about, you know, the whole animal butchery and everything else they're doing here. So spent a year there, which is by far the hardest year of my career, just a miserable, unhappy work environment for everybody, hyper demanding, insane hours. Josh wasn't happy. You know, nobody was happy, but I learned so much from him. And he was like, he, in, in many ways impacted my career more than anybody and to this day we're still on really good terms now and i need to have on this because he's like such a under the radar guy. yeah he's just like an that every, OG. He's a chef's chef too oh yeah yeah i mean like yeah, a he's total like the marco chef. pierre white of atlanta <laughs> he really is everyone <laughs> yeah. talks about josh and you know i mean i think he's really really talented but it's interesting when you talk about all of these experiences 
you know, I'm also, as someone who's been covering this this restaurant scene for a while, um, seeing those were all hotspots. So yeah. you kind of understood, like, you got a lot of data before you op started doing your pop-ups and opening yeah. Little Bear, like about what it took to operate like those high level restaurants. Yeah, for sure. And you see like, cause those places are, the, the fame is like a flash in the pan moment. You know, there's gonna be something else in a couple of years, but the restaurant is ultimately only as good as the staff that works there. Everywhere I worked, it was kind of like, I worked there until it felt like, you know, it was either losing momentum or people who I was learning from left and I needed to go somewhere else to learn from somebody new. I never made it like an abattoir. I made it a year to the day and put in my notice because it was that brutal working there. But I yeah. was like, I'm not going to burn a bridge. Annie right. Catrano totally. super Be powerful. Josh is yeah. great. Yeah, I'm going to make it a year. Then I'll put in my notice, gave him a month and worked it out and then moved on to go back and work for Ryan at Empire State South. And then that kitchen was like, you go back and look at the staff that we worked with and like all of us now have our own restaurants or, you know, at the very least are like executive chefs somewhere big, you know, across that pretty much scattered across the country. Yeah, it was huge. And, you yeah. know, at that time I was there from 2010 or 2011, something like that to 2013. So kind of in the heyday of it, you know, you'll get like Jeff Wall who opened Kimball House and now is out in Santa Cruz with Alderwood and some other stuff, you know, uh, just everybody like Micah Fister opened a butcher and baker in Marietta. There's you know, a guy, Eric Pomering has a place in Florida, all these big names, Kyle Giacovino has places in Savannah, uh, you know, Parnas, obviously, has Talat Market, just like, I mean, there's probably a dozen people who worked in that kitchen that now are either running their own place or, you know, own their own place all across the country. And, you know, that's why the restaurant was good at that time. You know, obviously, Ryan, now with Staple House, kind of leading everybody. And it does you know shape your career because it shows you one the importance of a team which is really hard especially for someone like me who's a chef owner of a small place like you you want to do everything all the time because oh, your reputation is on the line i mean you're i mean like i i have to say i was so impressed when i was at your restaurant to see like you as a boot on the ground like you were yeah. like working the hostess stand you were like clearing tables you were doing everything i mean yeah, I like, think I was on hosting that night. Yes, you were. Like I pretty I, much I mean, never was... deny a request off. So it's like, sure, we'll, we'll figure that's it out. That's impressive to see. You know, you feel like you're doing quality control too. And you just don't yeah. see that very often. No, not every chef can do that. No, no. Um, but that was and, why and we opened the way to. we did. Yeah, uh, but it's was... just, it's good to see. Yeah. Um, how did you make the jump from being someone else's cook to opening, you know, yeah. Eat Me, Speak Me, which was your pop-up. It was uh, pure was coincidence. That? that was 2013 when it mm -hmm. started. Um, so yeah, I was burned out by the end of my tenure at, at Empire State South. I had been there for, you know, two years and some change. And I just felt like the culture in the kitchen there was getting increasingly toxic and nothing was being done about it. I didn't like the way that, you know, younger cooks were being kind of bullied and it felt like this isn't a positive environment anymore for people to work in. There's so much swagger at this point that younger people are going to be deterred. And I was seeing it with people who had come in, work for a little while and quit because they were just like, okay, well, they came in to learn this great restaurant and then they were just kind of like bullied out. And the established crew that was there kept their spots and just sort of it was kind of like 
not welcome to the team. It was like, what are you trying to do in our kitchen? So it was just this weird environment. And I was just exhausted. I was getting paid a salary of $28,000 a year before taxes and working like 70 to 90 hours a week, depending on the week. It was just like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? So I, out of the total blue, just uh, sent a message to Elliot Moss from uh, now owner Buxton Hall, who at the time was the chef of the Admiral in Asheville. And I'd eaten there a few times. A best friend lives there, so I'd visit a lot. It's like, this food's awesome. I know they do some charcuterie. At the time, I was like focused a lot on like charcuterie work when I was at Empire. So I just sent a message and was like, you don't know me, but I'm thinking about moving just to try to get a, you know, change of scenery and see if it kind of reinvigorates my career a bit. And, uh, you know, just wondering if you have any need for a charcuterie or butcher or whatever. He called me back like probably 10 minutes later and was like, yes, we are opening this place called Ben's tune up. It's going to be a ramen place and we're going to make our own sake. And we wanted to do like pickles and all this cured meat and stuff too. But then I'm going to open this barbecue place once this one kind of gets underway called Buxton Hall. And we really need somebody with, you know, butchery knowledge and whatever for that. So if you want to come, you know, work with us at Ben's for a while, once Buxton opens, we'll move you over there. So it's like, all right, great, let's do it. And of course it took forever to open longer than I expected, like every restaurant. So my friends from Steady Hand Poorhouse, the coffee shop at the time, uh, which now one of the owners, uh, Dale Donche, has uh, Spiller Park. Um, but it was uh, a couple guys, and they were in between locations because they are they were subletting, basically, and the main tenant uh, sold their lease or whatever, so everybody in the building kind of got pushed out. So they started doing a pop-up for breakfast out of the Iberian Pig, like breakfast and lunch, because uh, the Castellucci's are some regulars, the coffee shops. And... Uh, and Dale and Jordan were like, you want to just come serve some, you know, breakfast and lunch with us at this pop-up until your other job opens up. So I was like crashing on, on the floor in their apartment. And me and one of their employees would like load these empty milk crates up at five in the morning with all of our me's and drive over and run this pop-up. And eventually after a month or so of that, they were like, all right, why don't we like switch to dinner pop up with coffee and they worked out a deal with candler park market to use the deli after it closed so we started doing that and at this point i was also working for elliot so i would do the pop-up i think it was monday and tuesday night mm-hmm. wednesday i'd get in the car drive up to Asheville, work wednesday night thursday friday saturday in Asheville, leave after my shift on saturday drive to woodland gardens in athens pick up produce prep all day sunday do the pop-up Monday and Tuesday and just kept repeating it after about a month and a half of that was like, okay, this is not sustainable. So, um, I was kind of getting weird vibes from Elliot's co-owners and Ben's tune up that it just felt like it was a strange fit and, uh, was enjoying doing the pop-up. So I kind of like pulled him aside and I was like, you know, Hey man, uh, I'm sorry to do this after having just started with you, but I have the opportunity to turn this pop-up full-time. I'm really enjoying it. Like feel kind of reinvigorated in food for the first time. So I'm going to have to put in my notice and kind of told him, like, I feel like he's a little overqualified for the partners he had at the time too. I just feel like there's this divide between you who I see doing everything. And these people who seem like they have no clue what they're doing, just like hope they're able to keep an eye on it and just be cautious. He was like, yeah, of course, you know, no harm, no foul. Congrats on the pop-up. Look, glad this is going to work out. We've been great friends ever since. I came back, did the pop-up full-time and never really looked back. And 
Um, he, in the meantime, immediately broke up with his partners like a couple weeks later and was like, yeah, it turns out they were kind of crazy. So he found a better partner in Marijuana Ronnie and opened Buxton Hall and he's had amazing success ever since. So it kind of worked out for both sides, but that was how it started. So yeah, I just kind of fell into the pop-up and was like, all right, this is actually fun cooking again. So didn't make any money for the first, you know, year of doing the pop-up out of the deli and Candler Park Market, but I enjoyed it. So, you know, we just kind of kept doing it and hoping for the best and found a few other locations and eventually sort of became stable and, and it was able to be a full-time thing for almost seven years. You're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. This is my interview with Jarrett Steber. With your pop-up, it had like a very like different aesthetic than anything. Like the menus I remember were like mm-hmm. always like really like highly designed, highly graphic which really matched the food. It was highly creative, um, big flavors, uh, lots of interesting ingredients that a lot of other chefs were not serving at the time. I mean, you were definitely playing around with Sichuan peppercorns and stuff before most, you know, non-Chinese chefs were playing yeah. with them. Um, how, like, can you talk about how you conceptualized Eat Me, Speak Me? And why yeah. did you call it Eat Me, Speak Me? Well, it's, the name originally came from the one of the steady hand guys from Jordan Chambers. When we were moving to turning the pop-up into a nighttime thing, we were trying to figure out what to call it. And he was like, fuck it, dude. Let's just call it Eat Me. And we're like, all right, sure. Why not? <laughs> so we just kind of rolled with it. And then it turned into Eat Me, Speak Me because um, we, we weren't even allowed to do BYO at the deli at Candler Park Market because mm. they sold retail wine. Mm-hmm. So with all the liquor laws, people couldn't even like sit at the counter and open it. So at the time, our branding guys, which going into the the graphic side of it, the team we worked with, Office of Brothers, who we've worked with for forever, going back to the to the pop-up days and steady hand and all this stuff, their office at the time happened to be like a block down the street off of Glendale. So we started doing it once a week on Thursday nights where we would get a bartender, one of my friends from around town to set up at their, um, at their office and people would come in and have dinner. We'd slide them a piece of paper with the address and then they could walk over and go have cocktails, which of course were free, but it was encouraged to tip the bartender. Well, right. you know, mm-hmm. um, and those nights we called eat me, speak me. Cause it was like a speakeasy kind of situation. Uh, and then, of course, people just got really confused. But well, what's eat me? What's eat me? Speak me? What's the difference? And we also <laughs> have to remember that this was 2013 when it started. And pop-ups, uh, you know, like people didn't even no understand pop-ups. what pop-ups were. Yeah, it was. I impossible. mean, like you were like, I mean, you were one of the first pop-ups. Pretty much, it was. You know, you mentioned Moses, uh, the Baton Supper Clubs. Moses from Deer Hunter started mm-hmm. the Baton Supper Clubs at Gato uh, with some chefs coming in town, like Danny Bow and all these big chefs. And then Alan So was doing Arigato after that. He had helped with the baton dinners, but then started doing Arigato, the ramen pop-up out of Gato. And then I was doing Eat Me, Speak Me. That was it. And, uh, you know, we became friends because we were side by side and they opened later than us. So he would come in and have dinner before his shift and then go work. And we were so slow out of the deli counter because everybody was just like, oh, the deli's still open. It was like, <laughs> no, I'm just like steaming georgia coast clams here on the panini press if you want to we're like i got some blood sausage sorry you wanted a turkey sandwich so he was like dude this is not the right fit like gato's like supporting pop-ups like why don't you just come over and do it here you can do you know a night or two a week whatever you want and then be my support cook for arigato and i'll be like your backup cook during you speak me night so 
that ended up making the most sense. And that was where I worked with Todd Ginsburg too. He invited me to come do the pop-up out of General Muir's deli counter. So I was doing lunch like one or two days a week with them dinner at Gato, cooking for Ari Gato. Also, it was just kind of a mess in the same situation at the General Muir. They were great and supportive, like working side by side, but it was a lot of people just being like, oh, there's a wait for a table, but I can get a Reuben from you, right? And it was like, oh, same thing, like weird food you don't want, probably. So yeah, Gato ended up being the best fit. But yeah, nobody knew what pop-ups were in Atlanta. It was like going on in New York and San Francisco, mm -hmm. and that was about it. So I feel like if I'd been in Brooklyn cooking blood sausage on a panini press in the back mm -hmm. of a grocery store, we would have had a line around the block. But in Atlanta in 2013, we sold, you know, $500 a week sometimes and five nights of service. So it was definitely not sustainable. But then it started to get better at Gato and, you know, a lot of the aesthetic stuff. It was like, you know, things that we had never done before in Atlanta with the pop-ups, like we kind of felt like we could just do whatever we want at this point. Like I can cook any food that I want. I don't have huge overhead to worry about. It's a small space at Gato. So it's just kind of like, if there's only 30 people that are interested in this, that's mm -hmm. all we need. So who cares about the rest of them? And then with the branding, it was the same thing of like, these guys are friends of mine and they're great graphic designers. And it was just sort of like, as long as the info for the dishes gets on the menu, make a look however you want. I don't care. I don't know how to do graphic design work. So it was kind of like, you guys do the menus, have fun with it. We'll do the food. We'll have fun with it. And if anyone doesn't like it, tough. They can go, you know, whatever, across the street and eat at La Fonda. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was really playful like i remember yeah and a lot of the elements have have um transferred to little bear you know like the fuck me up sam yeah, which i think yeah, i said yeah, exactly. fuck me up sam when i was writing it because like play it again sam in my head oh, I don't know, yeah. but, like many years <laughs> that's, ago <laughs> that's for our casablanca papa <laughs> yes <laughs> yes but um but uh how many years were you there uh, Agato, I want to say it was like two and a half, three years, maybe. It's and a then the last run long run. And we got to the run. point where we just couldn't grow anymore because, you know, the, at the time they still had the booths and that was like killing business because mm -hmm. we'd have, That's you know, four so booths, too. seven bar seats, and there'd be four, two tops sitting at the booth. So you're feeding eight people and wasting the space. Meanwhile, there's like 12 names on the wait list. So you have to quote people three hours, you know? So we ended up just like kind of doing the same numbers and with the way we source everything local, all the product that we get comes in once a week when the farmers deliver, we're not like running to DeKalb or Buford farmer's market and buying stuff from the grocery store. It's like, if we run out of it, we're out of it. So mm -hmm. we, you know, we could only fit what could fit and the couple shelves that we were allowed to use and, and the one no reaching cooler. There, right? Yeah, no walk-in. Yeah. It was a two-door yeah. reaching cooler and we had two of the shelves in it and that was it. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, we literally cannot do any more in sales than we're doing. It was like within a $500 range, the exact same sales every weekend for, you know, after a while you're like, all right, let's move somewhere else. That's when we moved to SOS right. when they offered us the space because it was bigger and we felt like we could, you know, had a higher capacity, a walk-in that we could, you know, have access to. So that was part of the change for moving, but yeah, Gato was a great home for it. And you eventually would open in Summerhill, which yes. is, you don't know, which somehow a lot of my friends don't know what Summerhill is. It's a little, yeah. uh, it's a historic neighborhood over near where the old Turner Field used to be, if yep. you're old like me. Um, and- Still Turner Field you, to me. 
Yes, it's always Turner Field for Men. Just <laughs> like I had friends that like lived around there as like a twenty year old. It's just weird. But um but it's a really cool neighborhood what it's turned into. But you know, you were opening at a pretty impossible time, which yeah. was during COVID. Yeah. Um, you opened at the beginning of twenty twenty. Yeah, we opened February twenty sixth of twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. So we had right. two weeks before the the one week that we were still open after that because nobody knew what that even meant and all of us were still open for a week mm-hmm. and then we kind of saw the writing on the wall and we were like well i guess we just got to be a takeout restaurant next week you know we're closed on mondays and tuesdays so kind of met with my two opening chefs after that sunday night service and was like all right let's look at this menu and you know whatever isn't going to be good to go scratch it and we'll think of something new to do and We'll just hope for the best on Wednesday. We're just going to be a takeout restaurant. We'll see what happens. That was and 15 months of to-go business after that, pretty much. Finally reopened the dining room of May uh, 2021. So we're just, we haven't even had a, a full year of being reopened yet. And was it hard? I mean, like, like I mentioned, like your food is like very high concept to me, but approachable. You can go to Jared's restaurant, Little Bear, it is called. Um, you can go there and have a four-course tasting menu for $48, which is pretty much unheard of. And not yeah. only, and it's not crap. You're getting local, you know, Nothing. produce and meat, you know, and, and it's it, it feels, I don't know, it just feels really good to be there. It feels yeah. really of the moment and it yeah. doesn't feel like Atlanta. It does feel like Atlanta, but it also feels like I could be in Brooklyn. Well, thank you. That's exactly what I wanted. The restaurant's inspired by mostly like San Francisco and Montreal would probably mm. be like the two food cities that most okay. inspired it. Um, but to an extent, yeah, like parts of Brooklyn or even some of the parts of DC, some of the older neighborhoods that are, you know, a little more interesting. It, it was supposed to be like those little corner lot restaurants that you find in other big cities. It's like kind of at the bottom of the apartments, at the end of the block. And it's this tiny little hole in the wall that has the same staff there all the time. It just has no business being as good as it is for how comfortable it is and affordable, casual. And that was the idea. It's like, we know what we're doing. We're putting a lot of effort into the prep and you know planning every element that we can of service to you know make sure it's a good experience for the guests and the food's interesting but once service starts and guests start walking through the door we want to disarm them immediately whether it's like the playful menu the relaxing like we don't have uniforms there's no you know hyper formality with the style of service without being unattentive but we want people to just like walk in and kind of be relaxed if you want to come in get dressed up you know, buy a bunch of bottles of wine, have a fancy expensive meal with some friends. You totally can. If you live in the neighborhood, you just want to drop in in your sweats and sit at the bar and have a cocktail and a bite of food after work. You can do that two or three times a week if you want. And, you know, we want people to be able to curate their experience. That's, you know, the biggest thing I think for me is having it be a place that can still be approachable without sacrificing its integrity. Yeah. I saw a lot of people using it differently. Some people were all doing the tasting menu. Some people were getting like one of everything on the menu. Yeah. Some people were having girls nights and just having drinks at the bar. Um, It does feel like a very useful restaurant, which I think is always really important. Yeah. Um, But, but it is out of the box. I mean, the food, I mean, the graphics are there on the menu again, the playfulness is there. Um, It's, I mean, like I was trying to explain it to, to one of my friends. And you know I'm a Jew. Very so hard I felt to comfortable. explain. Well, I said it was like hyper local Jewish Chinese fusion. 
yeah yeah i mean that's i think if you to take it sort of like uh exactly as it is to an extent right now that's the best approximation i would give it to good good i i I don't know what to call it a lot of times i've sarcastically when you know media requests or whatever asked for you know what type of restaurant is it i'll tell them it's locavore satirical gastronomica just to see (laughs) if anybody will have the balls to actually print it in their article and they never do um but i don't know what to call it to me it's very much a southern restaurant in the fact that we source literally all of our fresh produce meat any seafood it's like wild caught catfish from the Econi. like we're not even buying gulf coast stuff you know from the panhandle side of florida or whatever like if it's not from around atlanta we're not serving it the farthest we really go is anson mills for grains you know a few hundred miles away whatever it is like 120 or 100 30 miles away, something like that. Um, and kosher salt that we buy from Jacobson Flake Salt uh, Company, which is like, you know, Portland area, but it's a good domestic producer, but everything else, it's all local. So I think it's a Southern restaurant because everything is from the South. But if you tell people it's a Southern restaurant, they're expecting, you know, fried chicken and collards and chow chow and all that stuff, which is great, mm-hmm. but it's not what we do. So I don't know, maybe it's like an Atlanta restaurant because it's, southern but it's not really what you think of when you think of the word southern Mm -hmm. and it has this now szechuan kind of influence and the jewish food from my background to an extent but it's you know to me atlanta is like this international melding pot that's my atlanta at least you know eating on buford highway and there's this kind of irreverent thing where it's like creative and artistic but without being like new york is so much like look what we do we are creative and artistic we're the coolest best city on the on the planet it's like this thing like i'm a new york artist you know and atlanta is just kind of like whatever dude i'm an art like i'm gonna just like spray paint the inside of this tunnel or whatever like (laughs) don't mind me city's got chicken wing bones all over the place it's very low-key like yeah creative but i mean you you do see it coming up more like you mentioned ryan smith at staple house like he's doing it in his own way to maintain like yeah. family you know life work balance and then it's so great like that too like Georgia Boys, is so great. southern bell like they're all these like really approachable things like honestly like i when people find out what i do for a living they like want to tell me about all the michelin starred restaurants they've eaten at yeah they're and, like, the same that everywhere doesn't excite me that yeah. i don't want to collect stars like restaurants yeah. like yours excite me because like you said they really are surprising you say you're a southern restaurant to me it does i do like atlanta restaurant that's a great that's yeah. a great reframe um it's just so global feeling i mean just to uh give an example of a dish for listeners the other day i had something which was billed as general south chicken it was an incredibly crispy chicken thigh crusted with sesame seeds. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But then it had yeah. like a swipe of like tahina and then these beautiful roasted little beets. Yeah. Um, and it now that you're saying it's a southern restaurant, I do see what you're saying because they are components that I would normally see together, but not the tahina. I don't yeah, because you're used to like the, you know, general so type of chicken or whatever that's covered in the sesame seeds like we're using fennet seeds from Anson Mills and the sticky glaze that's on the chicken isn't just like mostly sugar and a little bit of water with a touch of soy sauce it's made with the base of like we blended up the first heirlooms of the season so instead of water and the brown sauce it's tomato you know tomato oh that's so good so it provides some of the acidity and Mm. you know the tahini 
Exactly. And then the tahini on the bottom of the plate is made with bene seeds and pecans from Pearson Farm. So, you know, it's like all these things from the South. And but no still... one else is freaking it that way. Exactly. Yeah. So like you you can still eat it like this resembles Chinese food that I'm familiar with to an extent, you mm-hmm. know, Americanized Chinese food or whatever, but it's made with everything from around here and has a little bit of the Jewish influence to it. And but it doesn't feel forced. It's not like this is fusion. It's just kind of like, no, this is I mean, I guess it is, but that's sort of what American culture is. So especially around Atlanta. So yeah, yes. I think it's trying to reflect that. Yeah, we're definitely becoming a city of mutts, which I love. Yeah. Um as a mutt myself. But like it was not an easy first couple of years for your restaurant, as you're saying. And, no. And, and and where are you today? Um, like, do you still love cooking as much? Do you still love hospitality yes. as much? Yes. Um, yeah, I do. Uh, if anything, like, it's it's almost like I, I never took anything for granted before, per se, but there's just a, a renewed sense of, like, appreciation for everybody that walks through the door for the most part. I mean, occasionally there's some guests that undo that appreciation for them <laughs> in a hurry. Uh, usually ones who are rude to the staff are pretty quick to get on the shit list, but I'm still pretty, you know, like in disbelief almost like every day that I walk through the doors. To, it's just weird to be like unlocking it in the morning. And she's like, this is my restaurant. Like, this is crazy. And then to think about, you know, all the people in the dining room be like, they could go anywhere else tonight, but they're here and we're still open because they've been coming in and supporting us. You know, I wish people would maybe a little bit more on like Wednesday night and less on Friday and Saturday, of course, if we're being picky, but still it's like every person that comes in, it's, you know, they really Even does Sunday feel... was bumping though. I mean, yeah, like... good. Sundays can be pretty good. They're, they're usually quiet earlier so like it's the five to like five o'clock to seven thirty reservations book up and it kind of chills out a little earlier but yeah sundays have been pretty good which is cool i think we get a little industry crowd too which is nice um yeah i mean it's it's too hard of an industry to keep doing if you don't still have some sort of love for it like it's not sunshine and rainbows nobody you know expects it to be it's hard and stressful and I work long hours. And when I leave the restaurant, I'm still managing the social media and answering all the requests because everybody just wants to slide in your DMs and ask for a reservation or a question that they could figure out if they just read the info on the website or the Instagram bio page or whatever. But I still answer all of them because I would want an answer if I was reaching out to a restaurant. There's still the emails and the ordering and the accounting and all the things that happen 24 seven. So it really is something where you don't get any breaks from it. And if you're, you know, not made for that and you don't have the stomach for it, then, you know, it's very much the wrong industry for you. But for me, I can't imagine doing anything else. And it's, you know, allowed me a potential like real future for, for my business and for my staff, hopefully, and for my wife and I, and our, you know, eventual family as we kind of work towards it as we have this restaurant as the backbone of everything. And I'm very grateful for it for sure. Something that you mentioned earlier when you're talking about your your uh, experience in other kitchens was about the quality of life, I guess, working. Yeah. Um, how has all of how have all those experiences influenced the way that you operate as an operator, as an owner, as a restaurateur? 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like I've learned more about what not to do over like a decade and a half of working in other kitchens in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, that was a really big part of planning for the restaurant leading up to to it was, you know, figuring out a way to make the restaurant viable for being so small. You know, one of the bigger grievances I had at a lot of restaurants was, you know, like Empire was an amazingly technical menu all the time but we would also serve like 300 covers on a weekend night. And it was just insane to try to keep up with the production at that volume. Mm. So, you know, I was like, yeah, 30 seats is already more than I want, but if I have less than that, I will never get a night off. So I'm going to get like the bare minimum amount of seats that I need to have the bare minimum amount of staff to like, now I take Sunday nights off of service Good. and it's like, you know, I can do it because I have a staff and it works. If we had any more seats, I would need, more people and the quality would suffer. If I had less seats, I would never be able to leave. So it's this kind of balance, but we have, you know, all of our full-time staff works four days. We don't work anybody on five shifts a week. Uh, so even my sous chefs are usually like around 45 hours a week. It's not, you know, 90, like I used to work. Um, and everybody else, the front of house staff is all like 30 to 35 most weeks, some part-time people. So I think that's one big thing is just more time away from the restaurant so that when you are in your restaurant shifts, like I demand a lot of the staff when they are there, I'm not like yelling at people or anything like that, but you know, you probably notice the way I'm like checking in all the tables, making sure everyone's got water, making sure that everything's set the right way. Like if you're going to put a napkin on a table to reset it, like put the edge parallel with the table, the little details, you know, don't put it mm -hmm. all sideways and look the shitty just make it look nice, you know? So it is a demanding environment in that sense. It's like when you are here for your shift, I expect you to like walk through the door, be ready to roll and just kind of crush the shift. And then when it's over, you go home and do your other stuff. You have your three days off guaranteed every week. We have a week in winter and a week in summer where we close the restaurant for a full week of vacation during some nice. of slow seasons. Um, you know, so all the, salaried employees get paid their full salary for the break and for the part-time and tipped employees we always do like a little crowdsource fundraiser to try to get money and then i'll also contribute to it just to be like i know you're gonna be closed for a bit should have saved money over the last six months of warning up until the vacation but i'm <laughs> sure you didn't so we're trying to do at least something to help with it so those are, you know, and then, yeah, not yelling at people. That's a big part of it. Like we have an environment that's supposed to be more respectful. And it's like, if you have an issue with somebody, bring it up professionally, either at the end of the shift or come to me and we'll figure it out. But there's no, like, there's no yelling. I try to not have the staff, especially kitchen staff. If there's a younger person working with us, it's like, this is a nurturing environment. Let's teach and show them how to be a pro. You don't need to be like mocking their mistakes or like making fun of their knife work or whatever. It's like, we can still have fun at work and we do. We're very playful and we joke around a lot, whatever. But it's also kind of like, you know, you're here to make people want to stay in this industry and not leave it. So, you know, you can start by paying people well, not being a total asshole to them. It's a pretty good start and kind of work up from there. It also makes me want to support you even more because the older I get, the more I don't want to support people that don't treat their people well. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. and word gets around, you it know, does. And, and it certainly at this point, 
like makes me leave people off of lists. You know? Yeah, for <laughs> you sure. Know? Like, for sure. I mean, like I maybe not a, like I always joke with some of my editors that we create like an ethical restaurateur list for Atlanta instead of best <laughs> best new restaurants. People yeah. that treat their people well. Yeah. But um, but uh, just to to wrap things up, I always like to ask people, you know, what do they cook themselves for comfort? Like when you've Oof. had a shitty day and yeah. like. Or what do you eat? You don't have to yeah. cook yourself anything. What yeah, do you I eat? definitely don't cook much at yes. home. I, I, my wife will attest to it. I'm a horrible home cook. Absolutely like most terrible. Chefs. Like yeah, most chefs. I don't want right. to do it for one thing. And unlike a vast majority of other restaurateurs, I'm like actually working in my restaurant a lot of the time. So I'm pretty tired by the time I get home. And I spend a lot of my day doing dishes. So that's really the biggest thing is like, our stupid ass small sink that nothing fits in. I'm just like, I do not want to mess with the dishes in this environment. And the stove isn't level, like the burners never get hot. Anytime you sear a steak or whatever, the fire alarm goes off. It's like, this is not working for me. So uh, that's that's not a common thing. My wife does a lot more of the cooking at home because she actually likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, for like comfort food, I just want to go to Northern China eatery all the time. It's probably like my biggest What's your order there? comfort food kind of thing. I always get the chunking chicken and then we get like one dumpling from each of kind of the categories, mm-hmm. like one soup dumpling, one steamed dumpling, one pan fried dumpling. Uh, so that's the big comfort food thing. I'm a total sucker, like guilty pleasure food, frozen Jose Olay taquitos. Nice. Just like uh, kids love those. Yeah, they're so good. It's, yeah, you know, I can make them fresh, but sometimes yeah. I just want to put them in the. It's in not the, the same. Oven. Yeah, yes. exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I usually like I'll get home from work. I also, uh, I like to think that I've stepped up the shower beer game to what I like to call shower cootery for my life of luxury. So we always <laughs> keep like Publix grocery store brand charcuterie around at home. It's a great little snack. So I'll fix like a small plate with some little cured meats and cheeses and take my beer, wine in the shower and like set it on the windowsill. <laughs> so I get home from work, you can pop some taquitos in and then while you're waiting, you know, they warm up in the shower and you can have your little nice fancy snacks while you're- Wait, so you're just like reaching out of the shower yeah. for like pieces of salumi and stuff like yeah, that? Yeah, like we have oh, a nice. window that's nice. like right at the end of the, mm. we have like a clawfoot tub shower sort mm-hmm. of situation. So yeah, I usually just have my little charcuterie plate sitting on the ledge and you, know, you just kind of reach over, <laughs> have a snack, just kind of like decompress on the day. It feels fancy, you know? So yeah, those are probably um, like favorite things to eat for sure. I love that. I love that. I mean, you really can't beat any type of snack plate. I like yeah. a snack plate. Oh, snack best. plate's good. Yeah, I can live on snacks. Yeah. Um. So what? Uh. So what is coming up for you? Is there anything you want to promote? Any new? Any events? Menus? Yeah. Organizations? Farmers? Yeah. So I don't know exactly when this will air, so it might not still be uh valid but we are doing a wine dinner on may 19th it's a thursday night um it's the first of a series that we're going to be calling natty by nature that's a wine collab with us uh vinoteca the wine shop and avant portier the distributor that we work with for for our wine uh that's going to feature like natural small production minimal intervention producers and our weird food and the fun of it's kind of going to be that everything's family style not just the food also the wine so you kind of just like sit down, you get a glass and we just open bottles of wine, put them on the table and it's just a dinner. we pass around the food, eat what you want, pour what you want, enjoy the wine, enjoy the food, have a good time. If you like anything, you can buy retail bottles from Vinoteca after the dinner. 
Um, the first one is going to be with Statera Sellers, a producer out of uh, Oregon, uh, Willamette Valley kind of area. Um, and Luke Wild, one of their uh, co-owners and winemakers is going to be in town. So he'll be hanging out for the dinner. People can ask him questions about the wine, whatever. Um, so that'll be fun. 30 seats only, one seating. So it's really small. We're just going to see how it goes. Uh, but then we'll start doing some more after that. So that'll be a fun thing to look forward to. Um, we also will have one other wine-related thing that I don't think I can quite announce yet. We don't have a hard date on but I would stay posted to our Instagram for a very fun, exclusive uh, wine situation that's going to be going down, hopefully the end of May or June. Um, and, that's, and what's your I mean, Instagram handle? At LittleBearATL. So, yeah, um, and is there anywhere else that people can follow you aside from that? Uh, we have Twitter. I'm not super active with it, but I do keep up with it and check it, but it just kind of is a place where the Instagram posts also go. Um we're also on Facebook, but I do not monitor that one at all. So if you have any inquiries or whatever, I would look up the info email address on our website or the links in our Instagram that is more effective. I will 100% not answer Facebook. I don't even open the app. It's again, like pictures from Instagram go there, but I already have enough to manage with one thing. So that's kind of the main focus is Instagram and then littlebearatl.com. If you're not on social media, a good way to do it as well. So you'll be able to have access to the Instagram feed without being on Instagram that way, or can also see the menu. I put the new menu. We reprint pretty much every day of the week. I always update the menu on the website. So it's always up to date. Um, and any kind of news and info updates will come through that for sure. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jerry. It was really nice to finally speak with you face to face. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for having me. I appreciate it. I love your food. Thank you very much. All right. Well, thank you again. Cool. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Jared for joining me. If you want to keep up with me, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Next week, I'm joined by John Kessler, the restaurant critic for Chicago Magazine. This has been The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. Thanks for listening.